1: Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
2: Lessons from the world's
1: top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Today, we're looking at the thing that you should do regularly to compete in sports, exercise. No, we're not giving you tips on how to lose weight or keep that butt tight. We're talking about the fitness revolution of the 1970s. So get a good stretch, dust off those barbells, and adjust your leg warmers. Here's Matt.
3: We begin in September of 1968. It turns out just a couple of weeks before Tommy Smith and John Carlos famously raised their fists in Mexico City. It's early September 1968, and a small group has gathered at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and they are there to publicize something brand new, National Jogging Day. There were members of a Baltimore jogging club, a, a former United States surgeon general. There were some Democratic congressmen, and there was the Republican senator from South Carolina, Strom Thurmond. The then 66-year-old Strom Thurmond, most known for his firm beliefs in racial segregation, he was the oldest of the group. And he was just the type of man at risk for a heart attack that doctors had in mind when they began recommending jogging in this era. Look, it's a test case of only one, but Strom Thurmond would live to be 100 years old. He served in the Senate for almost a full half century. So maybe he was on to something here with this jogging thing. Strom Thurmond and the rest of the pack, they they ran a few laps around the reflecting pool in front of the Washington Monument. And the, the reflecting pool is one quarter mile around the exact same distance as a regulation track. And then it was back to work, though. Actually, this was part of their job. As we have discussed, 1968 was a cantankerous political year, with the nation dividing over the war in Vietnam and things like black power. But on this day, we had Democrats and Republicans coming together to make a bipartisan statement that physical fitness was a matter of national importance. So let's use this moment, the first National Jogging Day in 1968, as our launching point to explore the growing interest in physical fitness among Americans in this era. You know, it was not that long ago that most Americans stopped exercising almost entirely after they graduated high school. You know, they had endured PE classes and now they were done. It's hard to imagine that now because everywhere you look, people are running and mountain biking, lifting weights, doing yoga. I saw a guy balancing on a tightrope the other day. There are fancy gyms that cater to adult clients all around us. Gold's Gym, Planet Fitness, LA Fitness, title boxing, the the list goes on. But this dedication to being physically fit as an adult, this is a relatively new phenomenon in in American history. we, We talked a while ago about how physical educators, they promoted the idea that children needed to exercise and play games at the turn of the 20th century. This was known as the gospel of play. And we talked more recently about how in the context of the Cold War and winning the medal count against the Soviets, physical fitness for school children, it was promoted as a patriotic necessity. But what was happening at the National Mall in 1968, this was different. Those were adults who were dedicating themselves to the idea that they needed to be fit, and they were telling other adults that they needed to get in shape as well. And in retrospect, I think this was the beginning of a fitness boom or a a fitness craze in this nation, a boom or a craze that we are still living through. So today, let's kind of trace the contours of this fitness boom, this emerging dedication to adult fitness in this era. We've reached the 1970s in this course, and that's why I'm doing this lecture now, because it's in the 1970s that the modern American fitness boom really began. And what I want to do today is try to figure out why. Why did Americans start working out in this decade? So let's intellectualize exercise. Let's think deeply about sweat. That sounds weird, I know, but let's give it a shot. All right, the first thing to say here is that the push for physical fitness among adult Americans, it has its root in a perceived physical fitness crisis in the 1950s. Doctors were warning that Americans were unfit. Now, chalk this up as a, what we call now a first world problem, because the general lack of fitness among Americans was the result of growing comfort and, and ease and material affluence in the United States after World War II, especially in the suburbs. In the suburbs, men drove their cars from their garages to the train station and then rode the train to work, you know, sitting for two hours a day, Then they sat nine hours a day in their offices. Suburban women, they drove their automobiles to the grocery store and then back. And modern appliances certainly made housework easier. This was all good. This was all easy. That was the point. But it was not good for one's physical fitness. There was nothing especially physical or strenuous about modern suburban life. And American doctors started to realize we have a problem on our hands. And I think that this is revealing. When doctors and cultural commentators worried about the lack of fitness among men and women in the suburbs, they focused on different parts of the body for each. For men, the concern was about their hearts. American doctors in the late 1950s, they observed a rise in the number of heart attacks among American men. They declared that there was a cardiac crisis in the United States. There was a pretty famous 1958 book called The Decline of the American Male, and it explained the problem succinctly like this. Take the suburban commuter lifestyle, add in some heavy cigarette smoking in the three martini lunch, and of course, the long hours at the desk, and you have a heart attack in the waiting According to this book, it was the wife's responsibility to make her husband healthier. I mean, after all, her husband was ruining himself at his job for her and the kids. Or at least that was the argument. American housewives, they were instructed of the importance of the low cholesterol diet. They were told to avoid fried foods and to feed their man fruits and vegetables. And one of the things that I find really interesting here is that the remedy that doctors were proposing, it was dieting. It wasn't really exercise. That comes later. You know, most adult men in the 1950s, they just did not give much thought to to exercise. It was grooming, a well-shaved face and slicked back hair. These were the important physical qualities. I think this is one of the things that the show Mad Men got so right about this era, if you've seen it. The main character, Don Draper, he spends a lot of time combing his hair, but we never once saw him exercise. The concern for women in this era was not the heart. Instead, the emphasis was on her appearance, and in particular, the focus was on her waistline. In his best-selling 1965 book, The Overweight Society, Peter Wyden warned the American housewife that she needed to get thin, and that was the buzzword of the era, thinness. You need to get thin and regain your honeymoon figure. Your husband wants you thin. He wants you to look exactly the way you did on your honeymoon back when you were 21 years old. I mean, talk about an impossible task. And the way to get thin, he said, was by eating less, more than any suggested exercise regimen. Women's fitness was wrapped up in the idea that women just needed to eat less and get thinner. Fashion magazines, they told American women that the goal was Twiggy, that wayfish it model of the 1960s. I mean, never mind that a woman would have to almost kill herself through calorie depletion to look like Twiggy. The very thin honeymoon figure, that was the goal. All right, I did that part quickly, but with all we have talked about in our course regarding gender, it should come as no surprise that fitness for men and fitness for women meant different things. For men, it was about inner health, the heart. For women, it was about appearance. It was about thinning down and looking good for her man. But there's a class component here as well. Let me point out the middle classness of these concerns that I just outlined. You know, the the soft, sedentary lifestyle was not the concern of the garbage man in Pittsburgh or the domestic worker in Mississippi. Now, the figure around which the physical fitness crisis orbited, it was the middle-class suburban American. And it's middle-class Americans, with their abundance of leisure time, who are going to be the foot soldiers of the exercise boom in the 1970s. In the 1970s, more and more adult Americans start exercising. And it's in this decade that we get the rise of what one historian calls The new strenuosity, adult Americans exercising strenuously. The guru of the new strenuosity was Dr. Kenneth Cooper, a, a former Air Force surgeon general. In 1968, he published a simple but very influential book titled Aerobics. It was Dr. Cooper who introduced Americans to the idea of aerobic exercise, which is the idea that you need a sustained, elevated heart rate for true physical fitness. Aerobic exercise will do it all, he said. It will reduce fat, tone muscles, it will strengthen the heart, it will make you healthy on the inside and look good on the outside. And Americans ran with this idea. Get it? They took his ideas to heart. All right, I'm on a roll. The new strenuosity is clearly a response to the physical fitness crisis of the preceding decades. But let's dig deeper here because we might also think of the new strenuosity as a reaction to larger social and political issues from the 1960s and the early 1970s. And here's what I mean. Let me begin with a comparison. The most direct predecessor to this new interest in exercise and physical fitness was Teddy Roosevelt's call for the strenuous life at the turn of the 20th century. We, we talked about this, how vigorous and robust physical activity it was being promoted as a way to transform young men into the leaders of tomorrow. So the goal of Teddy Roosevelt's strenuous life, it was social Because the goal was to invigorate oneself in the name of preparing oneself for national leadership. You know, young men need to engage in these strenuous activities, and then the whole nation will benefit later from their leadership. But there was no such civic mindedness to the new strenuosity. With the new strenuosity, the focus was entirely on the self. The focus was on the individual and not society. And here's the argument. I I find these ideas fascinating. The argument goes like this. In the 1960s, young people, well, they had very serious goals to work toward racial justice in the civil rights movement or ending the war in Vietnam or pushing for feminist legislation. But now here it was the mid and late 1970s. And for many Americans, this was a time of disillusionment. You know, civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, they had been assassinated in 1968. The Vietnam War had been a long, draining, 10-year bloody mess. Watergate had exposed the corruptness of the political system, the Equal Rights for Women Amendment. It had gone down to defeat. And so in response frustrated and, and disillusioned Americans, they turned away from civic engagement and, and the public. And instead they turned inward toward the self. They had learned a lesson. All right, maybe I can't make society perfect or even make it better, but I know I can perfect or better the self. I, I can perfect or better my body because I have control over that. That's the theory. One historian of the 1970s, a guy named Christopher Lash, he called this turn inward the culture of narcissism. Though I've always thought that was too harsh of a designation. I prefer how Tom Wolfe described it. He called the 1970s the me decade. It was a decade when a generation of Americans, he said, they, they tried to distance themselves from the larger troubles of the era, and they turned inward. They sought personal satisfaction and well-being in their own lives. This turn inward and, and searching, it took many forms. This is when Americans began reading self-help books. They began attending motivational seminars. This is when Americans turned to Eastern religions and began practicing forms of bodily art, like yoga. It was in the 1970s that Americans began through hiking on the Appalachian Trail. You know, The first person to ever hike the entire 2,181-mile trail, he had done it way back in 1948. His name was Earl Schaefer, and he was a World War II veteran. And he said he hiked it to, quote, walk the army out of my system. Well, in the 1970s, thousands of Americans did it for the same general reason. It was an escape. It was a disconnection from the troubles of the world. It was a a strenuous form of
1: physical therapy. After the break, jogging. Just do it.
3: But the most popular manifestation of this turning inward and and improving the self through exercise in this era was jogging. The running craze or the jogging boom, whatever we want to call it, it began in the 1970s and it was spurred by a few things. It was partly the result of a book. Talking a lot about books today. In 1967, Bill Bowerman, he published a slim book titled very simply Jogging. Bowerman was a cardiologist and the track coach at the University of Oregon, and he urged Americans to take up jogging, non-competitive running, said take it up as a way to combat the cardiac crisis of the era. Bowerman is going to go on to also be one of the founders of Nike. That story is a few lectures from now. The jogging boom was fueled by the successes of a few American distance runners, At the 1972 Munich Olympics, Americans were treated to an amazing performance by the Yale graduate Frank Shorter, who came from far behind in the pack to win the gold. Frank Shorter would be exceeded in popularity by a long-haired, mustachioed University of Oregon runner named Steve Prefontaine. They called him Pre, and Pre liked to say that running was not about talent. It was about guts. Prefontaine died at the height of his career in an automobile accident. He was just 25 years old. And like the young musicians you know, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin, Pre gained semi-mythical status after his death. But more than the call coming from Bill Bowerman or, or the success of elite American runners, I think the jogging boom was spurred by the simple fact that jogging offered salvation to many Americans. Jogging was a different kind of physical activity on many levels. It was non-competitive. In order to win at jogging, one only has to get off the couch and just do it. And hey, that's a good phrase, just do it. Some, some sports marketer ought to use that one. So the jogger is in total control of their craft and to go back to my point about exercise as a retreat from society, I think this idea of control is really important. You know, the 70s were tough. There was, there was a sharp economic downturn in the 1970s. People were losing their jobs as factories were shipping them overseas. The jobs, not the people. There was rising unemployment. Americans were stuck in lengthy lines for gasoline. The American hostages were stuck in Iran. But jogging gave many Americans a sense of control over their own lives, a feeling of control that they lacked in the 1970s. So that's the argument. Americans felt as if they lacked control over their own lives. They felt like they lacked the ability to transform American society. But these new strenuous activities like jogging It gave them the feeling of control. It it gave them transformative power over their bodies. And so Americans engaged in strenuous activities. You know, the, the emphasis on strenuous exercise and reshaping the body, it would, of course, continue in the 1980s. But the desire to reshape and perfect the body would take different forms in that decade. It's in the 1980s that we see a shift in the exercise regimens of many American men, for example, a shift away from aerobic exercising like jogging and a move toward anaerobic pastimes like weightlifting, anaerobic meaning basically muscle building. It's in the 1980s that the very muscular physique starts to be viewed as the ideal American body. And I mean very muscular. Uh, Dolph Lundgren, Carl Weathers, Sylvester Stallone. Uh, the, the, The new fad was pumping iron and getting buffed. One of the inspirations for this shift may have been the president of the United States for most of the 1980s, Ronald Reagan. When he took office in 1981, Ronald Reagan was, well, at the time, the oldest man to become president. But despite his age, it was Ronald Reagan who masterfully used interest in physical fitness for political gain. You know, uh, photos of Reagan lifting barbells, working out on Nautilus machines, throwing footballs in the Oval Office, Ronald Reagan riding a horse, Ronald Reagan getting all badass with a chainsaw. These photos were everywhere during the early years of his presidency. And Ronald Reagan promoted the idea of a strong, rejuvenated, hyper competitive America. He was much more militaristic than his immediate predecessors. He dramatically built up America's nuclear weaponry. And so the argument that cultural historians make is that there's a link. Just as Reagan was flexing America's muscle and building up its arms, its arsenal, many American men were inspired to build up and flex their arms and muscles as well. I just think it's a fascinating thought. Um, maybe it's true, or maybe we all just wanted to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, You know, who, by the way, translated that hulking physique of his into political power and the governorship of California. For women in the 1980s, the number one exercise fad was aerobics, aerobicizing. There were exercise videos coming from TV and movie stars like Victoria Principal of Dallas and Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda's workout videos were immensely popular. And there was a very interesting argument out there about aerobics. Now, some American women celebrated aerobics as liberating They emphasize the idea that women sweating and engaging in this strenuous form of exercise is a very important means towards physical health and greater self-confidence. But at the same time, there were some feminists who were troubled by the aerobics fad. They had worked to get Title IX passed and have it applied to competitive sports in the United States. And now, all of a sudden, in the 1980s, there seemed to be a shift away from competitive sports and sort of exercising in the name of building character and a shift toward exercising to look good. And more than that, as they feared, exercising in the name of being more sexually alluring. Yeah, there's all these pieces of evidence we could point to here. You actually saw this shift in Barbie dolls. In the mid-1970s, the most popular Barbie doll was Gold Medal Barbie, a female Olympic athlete who had won a gold medal in competitive skiing. But the most popular Barbie in the mid-1980s? It was Great Shape Barbie, an aerobics instructor decked out in a spandex leotard and leg warmers. The critics said that aerobics emphasized passive femininity. They said, but first of all, like with the honeymoon figure of the 1950s, aerobics emphasizes a body ideal that is just unattainable, although at least this was attempted through exercise and not starvation. But mainly they bemoan the fact that women seem to be aerobicizing in hopes of making their body more appealing to men. So they said, it's not exercise for the self. It's exercise for the male gaze the athletic female was becoming a sexual and sexualized object. Look, whatever you think of the argument, no doubt about it, there were a bunch of videos and movies from the 1980s that equated women exercising with sex. Oh, geez, there was Olivia Newton-John's song and music video, Let's Get Physical, a song that explicitly links the gym with foreplay, she is exercising now, she says in this song, in the name of getting horizontal later. I mean, that's her line. There was the 1985 movie Perfect, starring Jamie Lee Curtis as a hotshot aerobics instructor. John Travolta was one of her students. And the title, Perfect, is revealing. Like with the smash hit from the era, the movie 10, in which Bo Derrick jogs, well, there's jogging, she jogs down the beach in her swimsuit. The idea here is that the goal of exercise is female physical perfection. Critics said sports and exercise are not supposed to be about achieving some level of physical perfection. They're supposed to be about building character, just getting healthy and doing your best. But American culture made it about beauty and sex. Once again, agree disagree, I find these ideas fascinating. But the 1980s were still to come. So let's end like this. Let's go back to the end of the 1970s and wrap up with the story of one more jogging politician. Back in the 60s, joggers were seen as oddballs at worst, kind of health freaks at best, kind of like vegetarians used to be seen. But by the late 1970s, jogging had gone totally mainstream. It was an American craze. You know, in 1977, the TV celebrities Lee Majors, the six million dollar man, my personal hero of that era, and Farrah Fawcett, one of Charlie's Angels. I may have had her poster on my wall. They appeared together on the cover of People magazine jogging with the headline Farrah and Lee and everybody's doing it. Stars join the jogging craze. But the nation's most famous jogger in this era was the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter had a complicated relationship to the pastime of jogging. Carter's publicists liked to boast of his jogging skills. They told the press every week the number of miles that Carter had jogged. And we learned that the president, he could run a sub 630 mile. We learned that through jogging, Carter had reduced his weight from 157 to 149 pounds. His resting pulse rate had been lowered from 60 to 40 beats per minute. All this was announced to the press Because Jimmy Carter's publicists were making the argument that because Jimmy Carter was physically fit, he was fit to rule the nation. Presidents make this argument using sports all the time. But this jogging propaganda, it came back to haunt Jimmy Carter. In 1979, while at the presidential retreat at Camp David... Jimmy Carter participated in a a local 10K run, right, 6.2 miles, and the press was invited to tag along and see their physically fit president do his thing. It was a pretty steep and and hilly course, and it was a humid day, and at the four-mile mark, the president became dehydrated. His legs wobbled, his, his face drained of color, and he sagged helplessly into the arms of his aides. And photographers captured the entire scene as Jimmy Carter was whisked into a car and rushed back to Camp David. I mean, there was a real fear that the president had suffered a heart attack. Now, Jimmy Carter quickly recovered, and in fact, he handed out trophies to the winners 90 minutes later. But the damage had been done. Instead of Carter demonstrating his strenuosity many Americans saw his inability to complete the race as a metaphor. A metaphor for, as they saw it, his weak and ineffective leadership. I'm not here today to debate Carter's presidency. I actually think he was a much better president than most people give him credit for. But I know one thing. Sagging helplessly into the arms of your aides, that is not a good look for someone trying to make the argument that because he's physically fit... He's fit to rule the free world.
1: That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, the wide world of sports.
0: School of Humans.